0: In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon His holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and project. Brothers, sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa wa barakatuh. We are now at the seventh lesson in the series that has to do with general prophethood. Uh, inshallah. We'll have enough time to cover lessons both 7 and 8 today so that we can finish the series still in uh, 10 lectures. Um, So this is the third topic that we are addressing, the third topic that we're addressing having to do with general prophethood. So we talked about the necessity of prophethood on its own. We talked about infallibility, and we just finished the infallibility topic. And, uh, inshallah, today we're going to start the third topic under general prophethood, which is miracles. So it's it's made up of two lessons. (coughs) One lesson that presents an overview of miracles, which is lesson seven, and the eighth lesson uh, is the objections and answers to what we present in lesson seven. Once again, I always remind of this point, is that this is supposed to be a Introductory level class or uh, overview. So, we're not going in depth. There's a lot of discussions about each one of the points we're mentioning. We could spend entire lectures on each one of the points we're mentioning, give different points of view, what different scholars and schools of thought have said about it. We're trying to give the overview of what we can consider today being the classic position uh, of our school, the school of the followers of Ahlul time. Uh, So the overview of this lesson is to provide uh, the major proofs for the prophethood. So there are three proofs that the author mentions very much in passing, proofs one and two, and then he spends the entire lesson on third proof, which is miracles. The point of miracles, as we'll see, inshallah, is to establish that the person who's claiming to be a prophet is actually a prophet. So in part, this lesson is... Yes, it's providing an overview, but it's also meant to allow someone to be able to assess that claim and assess the validity of someone claiming to be a prophet or claiming to have a miracle. Okay, so it's supposed to give us tools for us to to establish that, and inshallah we'll see some some points related to that. The lesson then goes on once it's uh, he presents the two very quick points. The third one is the miracle, so he spends a little 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 bit of time on the notion of a miracle what is it how do we define it in theology that's first Uh, and then he basically builds the entire lesson on the definition that he gives which is going to be made up of let's call them three big ingredients if they come together we have a proper definition they meet the proper definition of a miracle so a miracle is going to be made up of an extraordinary event Ingredient one that event uh, Has a divine origin or source, that's two, and three that this is related to a claim of prophethood. That's the third ingredient. And inshallah we'll mention a fourth ingredient at the end which is oftentimes found in works on theology but recently scholars have started to say that with this we have everything and the fourth ingredient inshallah we'll mention it very quickly is kind of implied under there and we don't need it as part of the classic definition of a era. Okay, so let's start right away with the evidence of prophethood. So when someone says, I'm a prophet, I've been sent by God with a specific communication or the revelation. uh, One way to right away assess that claim is to look at the history and the character of that person. So if you've lived with that person and you know them directly, you, you know them personally, you know how they've lived their entire life, or you're able to study that in good detail, extensively, comprehensively, then that alone could constitute a proof for the validity of their claim. If you have someone that you know and you consider them very reliable and trustworthy, you know their life, you know what they have gone through, you know how they conduct themselves, generally speaking, that they avoid anything that we would a normal person would consider wrongdoing or sin or evil or ugliness and behavior in any way shape or form you know that there's already a good foundation and Then they come and they say Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is communicating with me and he's asking me to communicate Those teachings that revelation to the rest of humanity or to a group of people Then you can rely on that as a proof on its own. So that's a first proof for Prophethood for someone to say I'm a prophet. We look at their life. We look at their history We look at the way they conducted themselves from the moment they were born all the way to the moment they start claiming that now they are starting their prophet mission, their prophetic mission. So generally speaking, first proof. Of course there are limitations and there are issues with this proof. The major one being, the majority of people do not have that kind of personal connection and personal knowledge and awareness of that person who's claimed to be a prophet. So the have not directly lived with that person. They have not been able to see them in action, so to speak, from the moment they were born until the moment they say, I'm a prophet. Uh, Nor are they able to study their lives in this manner in an extensive way. You may have (coughs) chapters of their lives that are well documented. You can go back and refer to them. But you're not going to be able to say, this is how they conducted themselves day in, day out, throughout their life. So these are the major. Obstacles, limitations of this kind of proof. Is it a valid proof? Yes. If someone is able to overcome those limitations of this proof. Okay? So that's a first proof that someone can keep in mind to establish the prophethood of someone. The second way to establish the validity of the claim of prophethood is if we had access to a reliable prior. Prophecy about such a prophet So you already believe in a previous prophet divinely appointed and You are well aware of some of the prophecies that they have given to you and you believe in them All of that is established to you and now all you need is to be able to directly apply the criteria and the conditions that have been Given to you from that previous prophet or a prophet living let's say elsewhere So two prophets could be living at the same time, but in different locations. So if you already have the prophethood of prophet A established, and they're telling you about A prophet B, you can use that as as an argument or as a proof. So that's another way to have proper valid evidence proof for the validity of the claim of prophethood. Once again, the issue with this is the majority of people will not have that type of knowledge, awareness. Uh, understanding that, or even belief in a prior prophet or a different prophet who has told them that a, another prophet exists at the same time or will come after with these conditions, with these criteria. So, once again, we see that there are limitations with that. Of course, if someone is in a situation where those limitations don't apply to them, then they can use that as a proper proof, proper evidence argument for the validity of a prophet. So those two, very quickly, that's what is presented in the lesson about them. Of course, a lot more can be said here, but that's all we're going to talk about. And now we jump to the third big way of proving the validity of a prophet, the claim of prophethood, (coughs) which is a miracle. Given that paths one and two are limited, they're not accessible to everybody, we go to path three. So path three is someone who comes and says, I'm a prophet, and the proof, that I am a prophet sent from God, is that I can perform a miracle. So before we go into it, very quickly in Arabic, the majority of works that you will see in theology that have to do with prophethood and nubuah in general, they're going to mention the term i'jaz or majizah for this topic. So I'm simply, once again, I try to give you the terminology. So this is classic kalam, this is... The majority, the crushing majority of our works, use that terminology. It's ajaz and ma'jizat. If you go back to the Holy Quran, it does not really talk about ma'jizat and ajaz. What it talks about is ayah. So this is something to keep in mind, and this opens an entire, huge discussion that we're not going to get into here. But the manner in which Allah Subhanahu wa Taala presents these things that you know, all I'm going to do is just give you a hint to where it can go in terms of the discussion. We're here trying to discuss things that are supernatural and extraordinary. They don't fit the normal pattern of causality that we're aware we're aware of. So this is supposed to be outside of the norm. That's why we consider it miraculous. So the Holy Quran refers to this type of miracle, miracle as an ayah but it also refers to the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as ayat ayat right so those items that we consider part of normal typical day-to-day life that we encounter all the time in the terminology and then in the conceptual framework of the Quran these are all miracles the things that we are taken for granted because we have access to them and we live with them and they seem to be day-to-day, common material things that we're well acquainted with, the Holy Qur'an presents them as miracles as well, if a miracle is an ayah, right? And more than that, if we go to the verses of the Qur'an, the Holy Qur'an considers each verse, calls every verse, an ayah. So one way to understand them is that each verse is a miracle. So I'm hoping that this, I just leave it at that, but that opens the door to a very big discussion on this notion of ayah, and what does it mean? And how are we supposed to be dealing with the things that we should take for granted, but the whole Quran comes and tells us, no, these are all signs or miracles. In the same way as Musa a.s. comes and shows his king being a miracle, or in the same way as we consider any other miracle of any other prophet. These are all miraculous. So they need to be looked at in that manner as well. And for the Holy Quran itself, yes, the Holy Quran we're going to talk about that, the Holy Quran itself, the entire Quran, the entire book, is a miracle. But every verse in it is a miracle as well. So this requires a lot more discussion and thinking, so we leave it at that for now. All that to say, if we go back to the terminology of the Qur'an, the Qur'an doesn't really refer to the miracles of the prophets as mu'jizah. It refers to it as ayah. When the Qur'an talks about Musa, it says that he was sent to Bani Israel with nine ayat. Right. So it's all ayah. It's always this reference to ayah. So keep that in mind, the ayah and the manner in which it's used in the Qur'an. If we go back to the scriptures, in terms of narrations, ahadith, yeah, we have ajaz and mu'ajazah, for sure. We have it in the sayings of the Holy Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt. Okay, so what is a miracle? So literally, mu'ajazah or i'jaz derivative, this is a derivative from ajazah, basically meaning inability, incapacity, failure. <coughs> if you fail to do something, if you're incapable, you don't have the ability to do something, even if you want to do it, you have ajazah. So, mo'ij is in this sense, just from a literal point of view, linguistic point of view, it basically means something that makes other people incapable of duplicating. Okay, so that's the literal meaning. That's why how the, the, the word, the noun is derived. Okay? Technically, or in how it's used theologically or religiously in a customary manner, this is a definition that's given in the book. Is this the only definition? Of course not. There are dozens of other definitions. We're not going to go into them. But it has all the main ingredients that you find in the majority of definitions, except one, and inshallah we'll mention it at the end. So, a miracle or a majizah is an extraordinary or a supernatural act. Okay, one. Two, performed with God's permission. So there's two components to this. Performed with God's permission by those claiming prophethood. So those two go together. And then three, in order to establish the validity of the claim of their prophethood. So those are the three ingredients. If you find all three criteria, all three conditions together, then you can say this is a miracle in the sense that it's understood religiously or theologically. So when we say there's someone who presented, brought forth a proof for their prophethood, it has to meet these three conditions. Because we are going to encounter very quickly here, but you will encounter, I'm sure, in your life, and if you think about this, you'll encounter many instances that may meet one or two of the definitions, but not all uh, criteria, but not all three. So it's important to meet all three to say this is a miracle in the sense of ijaz, miracle proving, establishing the validity of the claim of prophethood. Okay? So now, basically, the rest of this lesson is to go over. three criteria and try to understand them properly. So the first one is that, the first ingredient is that there's an extraordinary or a supernatural event taking place by the doing of someone. Okay, so let's part by the doing of someone and just look at the supernatural or extraordinary. What do we mean by that? Simply that there has to be something that takes place that does not fit the normal way of doing things, which in the majority of cases, for all of us as we understand it, is this is not the way human beings usually perform certain things, reach certain ends. There is a given path, usually through material causes, that usually allows you to reach an end. And here the end was reached in a completely different way. If that's the case, then we're talking about something supernatural or extraordinary. That's all we need. So one way that we can add this is, let's say we look at something that is taking place in the living world. So if you went to a biologist and you said, this is how something happened or what I witnessed, based on the laws of biology or chemistry or physics or, or, or depending on their field, if they tell you this is not how things usually work or this is impossible based on the laws we know, then you know that you're dealing with something extraordinary or supernatural okay so that's what we mean by that the point that we need from this is that do they occur or not so as believers generally speaking believers part of their belief is that we believe that there are because there is a supernatural world in the sense that there's a world beyond or behind matter and material causes then we believe that it has an influence and it has there is an intervention there's a causality there are things that can happen beyond the material causes that we know so do we believe in them or not so maybe an o- a door or a window towards a more extensive study of this that we're not doing here but if you guys are interested or this is a topic of uh, curiosity or more research is that we can look at for instance uh, events or actions that fall under parapsychology and today, a lot of experts say it does not really make sense. It does not fit what we understand from the laws of nature, how they, let's say, the mind works, or, or, or what yogis are capable of doing. And we'll come back to that at the end. But doubtless, there's no doubt that these occurrences, these acts, actions, are taking place. There are events and actions that take place today that do not fit the definition of the material normal causality things that may seem extraordinary, okay? So for a believer, it could be as simple as saying, I may pray for someone because they are ill and they get better. Or I give charity because I know by giving charity, I remove, I push away the harm in my life or in my family's life or so on and so forth. It could be as simple as that. Believing in that means you actually believe that there is more than just the causality, the cause and effect that are material and established by the laws of nature, okay? So that's all we need from this point. So we generally understand what it is, and we generally agree that it does occur. It can take place in the world. The second item, the second ingredient, is we said it happens with God's permission by someone claiming prophethood. The things that are taking place, so of course, don't forget, this is a definition we're saying three ingredients, so they build on each other. So now we have an extraordinary or a supernatural event, and we're adding to it God's will, and here we're gonna say these events fall into two big categories. So category one, they are events, they are supernatural, they are extraordinary, but they can be performed by a variety of people. I'm not gonna say anyone, potentially anyone. It's They're not actually taking place and happening by the act of every single person that we know, but they potentially could. In what way could they? Well, if we look at the examples we gave, or that we can give we could give, for instance, if we say a yogi who has trained, has practiced certain meditations or certain practices, certain rituals that allow them to do things that the majority of human beings would not be able to withstand. They would kill them or severely damage them, harm them, and yet they are capable of doing this. And the the manner in which they were able to do that is with practice. It's a science, it's a field, it's a knowledge, and they spend a lot of time practicing it until they reach a certain level of mastery of that field. Okay? And then, so we have those elements. We have those types of, let's call them extraordinary, supernatural, Acts, actions some of them fall in that category and then we have the second category obviously the ones that cannot could never be performed by just anyone even potentially so when we say miracle we're talking about only the second category not the first the first is not a miracle yes they are extraordinary yes they break away with what is customarily considered the normal natural order material causality of the world that will happen But does it happen in a way that even potentially no one else could replicate? No. So, how do we know? So, here the author gives us two criteria. We could add more, but here he goes to the the crux, the key criteria here. The first one is they can't be taught and they can't be learned. There's no Master, there's not someone I can go to who will ever teach me how to do the things that the prophets did under the heading of miracle. When Ibrahim falls in the fire, if we insha'Allah will have the opportunity to go their lives or how Musa throws his cane and it becomes a giant serpent or 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 there's no one that will ever teach me no matter what they know how to do that. It's not something that can be taught and it's not something that can be practiced, and I cannot train to get better at it. And even if I do it, I may not be able to teach it to anyone else. This is not the type of act that it is. And the second one, and this one requires a lot, it's a lot more nuance and requires a lot more analysis, and we're not gonna do that here, but we're giving the criteria at least, so you keep it in mind. The second one is that this second type is always overpowering. So no one can come and say, and I can do better, and I can do it more. I can do it in a way that's clearer or shows that I am better at it. If you fall in this type of act, so it cannot be taught, it cannot be learned, and it cannot be overpowered by any other act, by anyone else, then this is a definition of a divine miracle. <coughs> and we're going to have examples of the reason now, if we look at this, let's combine now the two. We had extraordinary events, supernatural events in the first criteria, and we said we encounter those even some human beings today. There are people who can bend metal. There are people, let's assume that it's all true and we can actually establish that, it's proven in the laboratory that they can actually do all of that. Or people who have some telepathic powers, or people who can do some remote viewing, or people who can do you know, all sorts of other parapsychological activities with their minds. We have that in criteria one. Now we come here to criteria two. So do we, we say, is this something that could potentially be learned or not? If we look at those types of activities, we say, well, it's just a matter of doing more research on it, and then we'll understand how the brain works. And maybe if we control the brain waves, which is a lot of research currently being done on, on that, for instance, then we could potentially all be able to do all of that. So there is hope, there is a potential. Now we may or we may not, but theoretically there is nothing preventing human beings from being able to do those, those acts that we're witnessing and we're seeing. Which is completely different from the types of miracles when we say miracles of the prophets we're talking about, which they can never be learned or taught, and they're always overpowering. No one is going to come and say, I'm going to bend the metal more than you. If it's a miracle doing it, uh, if it's a prophet doing it for divine reasons. And if we (coughs) go through the miracles of the prophets, that's what we see. So, first of all, are they limited to the prophets? So, the first criteria we said no. Examples, yogis, not limited to prophets. But if we fall under the second criteria, are they limited only to prophets? And the answer again is no. So, we may have people who are capable of doing or who do these types of acts that are supernatural and in manners in which no one else can replicate and they are still not prophets. So in English, the general heading we can give to those people is a saint. awliya imman. We can witness all sorts of miracles from them in this sense. So no one else can replicate what they do it's not necessarily things that could be taught or learned from anyone else. And yet, these people are not prophets. Okay, That's why we said the, the three criteria are important. We have to put them together to have a miracle in the sense of something establishing the validity of a prophethood. Okay, So until now, we have encountered examples where these are occurring, but they're not to establish the validity of a prophet. Yeah, so here we have, uh, if we start, I do not think we spent enough time on this, but if we start applying this to different things that we encounter in the world, we start right away putting them in different categories. So now we have things that meet the first criteria, they're extraordinary, supernatural, (coughs) not miraculous in this sense. And two, we're going to have people who go beyond that and perform acts that are not replicable, not something that anyone can duplicate, not someone that not something that anyone can learn or teach, but they're still not miracles because they haven't claimed to be prophets. And we're going to come back to that. And when we say they're not, something that cannot be overpowered. If we take the example, for instance, from the Quran very quickly, we're not going to go through the verses. But when the Quran says that the magicians that Pharaoh hired to create the illusion uh, to have an answer to the miracle that Musa, salam was bringing to them, saying, I'm from God and this is my, my proof. So, Pharaoh went and got the magicians. What the magicians did was simply a, a trick, but still a trick that looked like they had created snakes, serpents, with, yeah, simply with their canes and with their ropes, as the Quran says. And yet, this was a type of an illusion. But fine, this part was okay. Where do we see the overpowering? So they did their trick, as a very good magician would do. And most likely in a way that today no one would be able to do. Okay, There's something very expert and very extraordinary in what they did. The answer that came back from Musa, or from God, is that his snake actually ate all the others. This is what we mean by the overpowering. So it's done in a way where there is no answer, and there is no doubt, and there is no confusion. Trickery, maybe. Maybe another magician who would see the ropes, who would see the canes go down and become snakes, another magician would say, yeah, potentially someone else could do that. But if they saw the snake eating them, they would say, no, no, this is not a a magic trick. There's something else going on here. And this is the point. That's why we said, and it's important if we don't want to spend too much time on this, but not to go down that path, you go back to the expert. And the expert will tell you, is this a trick? Is this something that potentially could be duplicated by someone else, granted that they had the knowledge and the, the practice and the training? Or is this something that breaks all the rules? Okay, so this is a, an example of that. And then we're going to continue with the distinctions in the next slide. And here, so the topic, as we said, is broken down in two. So we have God's will or God's permission to perform the miracle, but it's performed by a prophet, but it's performed by a person who's claiming prophethood. So the the author goes very quickly over this point, but if we go back to classic works, this is a very big point in works of theology, although I think the time we've spent discussing vertical causality or Tawheed of Ali answers this point very quickly. The discussion that we have in works of theology is who's actually performing the miracle? Is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who's performing the miracle? Do we say Allah performed the miracle or do we say the Prophet is performing the miracle? Who's the real agent behind it? And so if you remember everything we've said about divine will and divine power and how there's a vertical causality, so there's no independent cause, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant the faculty, the power, the will to the entity to perform its action to perform its role then there's no problem in saying it's the prophets themselves who are performing it and that opens the door and I think I may, may have mentioned it at the next one in any case that opens the door to a point again it's nuanced and it's very delicate but it's mentioned in, in some works so I'm mentioning it quickly uh, that the personality the individual personality of the prophet or the wali, the saint, whoever's performing the miracle is actually an ingredient in that miracle. It would make a difference who performs the miracle. It manifests itself differently because it goes through their soul. It goes through them, through their individuality, their personality. When it, yeah, so it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is ultimately the cause of everything, including the miracles. But these miracles are going through specific people. So there is a role that their personality, their individuality plays, and this is not the time to go deeper into this topic. But all that to say, based on everything we've presented until now about the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or philosophically presented as vertical causality versus horizontal causality, we go back to those lessons, then this point becomes moot. We don't need to spend as much time as they do in classic works to say who is performing the miracle. Everything ultimately is done by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's his power and his will. No one is, no cause is uh, Autonomous, right? So everything is from him, all power and all will and so on and so forth So the claim of prophethood is the third ingredient. So now we have an extraordinary or supernatural act (coughs) One, two performed with by someone with the will and power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or God's permission Three, very important ingredient with a claim of prophethood, okay? Very important. that They are claiming I am a prophet. We have to add that. So the difference between prophetic miracle and other divine miracles, this is what we said when we said, there are miracles in the sense that no one else can replicate. You cannot teach them. You cannot learn them. They will be overpowering. But the person who is performing that miracle does not claim to be a prophet. He doesn't say, see, I can do this, therefore I'm a prophet of God. He's talking to me, and I have to communicate these new teachings to you with a religion and revelation and so on and so forth. That claim is not there. Okay? So if you go into the works of theology, for instance, here they start making it even in the hadith, you start seeing distinctions. So they will not call everything a ma'jizah or an ayah. They will say, Here we have a karama. Okay, so maybe it's something you can't replicate, you can't teach or learn. But so that you're not confused between that and what the Prophet is doing. So this person has been granted a favor, a grace from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for their high spiritual purity and rank. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows them to do certain things. Those are favors or graces or that they receive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but there's never a claim to Religion or being a this is a revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and therefore I'm a prophet. This claim is not there Okay, so this is very key important thing. This is why so as to avoid that confusion We say these are karamat and these are manjazat These are miracles and these are call them whatever you want You can call them favors or in some places they they it as a saint miracle Versus a prophetic miracle or a prophet miracle. Okay to be very accurate and the same thing sometimes we find in the communications of Allah subhanahu So in the verses of the Qur'an, generally speaking, it refers to a lot of the communications, if not all of the communications of Allah, as wahi. Okay, so generally we translate that as a revelation. But so you go into the narrations or the works of theology, you see here there's different types of communication. So depending on how the communication takes place, or between whom and whom, so is it a prophet or not, it may not be or sometimes it's with a prophet but not in the in the sense of a scriptural revelation to people it may be called ilham for instance so you don't confuse them. so it's in the same way or tahdith so we have in the and the narrations Zahra or in, in her ziyara is al okay what do we mean here so there's a communication but we don't call it wahy there's a communication and from, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Maryam alayhi salam there's tahdith there's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicates, speaks to the person, but we don't call it a revelation or a blind person. <coughs> okay? So these are things to keep in mind and these are simply so we don't confuse everything as though it's one. These are different types, different of different nature. Would the distinction say? be Because he is meant for general consumption as in the prophet to Whereas an imam or hadith is just for the prophet himself. It could be. It, it could definitely be we have we would have to go because there's five or six different types And we would have to go through all of them to see which one is taking place where and then we come up and there are There are scholars who have done that so where does tahdeeth, where do we call it tahdeeth, where do we call it ilham And then you go into the different types of let's say a hadith that we have from the Prophet Why what do we mean by hadith Qudsi? How is it different from the Quran? Both of them are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the people, but this one is called Quran and this one is called Hadith Putsi. So, why the distinction? Okay, so that that's the whole topic. But yeah, that's definitely on that. You're on, on the right path with that, exactly. Just yeah. Just a quick question. Um,
1: for example, the sorcerers of fir'aun mm-hmm. when they say when in the Quran is talked about how they submit religion to Allah, etc. Did they actually say that? Was Allah saying that they said that? You know, you know what I mean. Is Allah quoting them?
0: It could be. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. But is it a direct quote in the sense like, that those the exact
1: words? Yeah, those exact words. Is that how they spoke to the Quran? using this kind of yeah. Arabic and that kind of language and that? Well, so, of course not the Arabic. Yeah, course. that's what I mean. Yeah. So is it?
0: So, yes. Like Allah's, It's recounting. The Quran recounts a story. Of Mm -hmm. course, it doesn't recount it in all its details. And it recounts it in a way that fits the purpose of the Quran and the Quranic language. Mm -hmm. Is it a direct quote? I don't think anyone knows. They don't speak Arabic back then. Yeah, of course not. But the same thing could be said with the angels. The same thing could be said. That's the whole discussion about the entire Quran. That wasn't actually revealed in Arabic with those words to the holy prophet in this order, or is this him who Puts it together in this way in his Arabic to the people. Okay, so that opens a whole discussion, and, and it, it creates. It's the
1: topic of the Quran is Arabic, just for Kareem's sake, in case he's very Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but that
0: yeah. So that creates entire it's a yellow card entirely card. different schools of thought. So depending on what you, where you are in this, you're going to fall in a completely different camp. If you say the Holy Prophet is the one who's basically putting this, the envelope external clothing with this Arabic language and wording and these letters and that order—it's all from the Holy Prophet. It's completely different than saying this is revealed to the Holy Prophet exactly in this manner, and the Holy Prophet is communicating as is to the people. These—you've fallen two completely different camps, and it has huge ramifications afterwards. Okay, so we're not going to go into that. But today, if anyone is interested, so these are the topics that would fall under what they call al kalam al-jadid contemporary or neo theology okay because theology as we're discussing it so you know I try to put some topics here and there and keep them relevant but a lot of what we're discussing is the theological uh, framework or theory uh, as it has been presented classically so a lot of these points are a thousand years old if not more we're saying the imam spoke about that right which is completely different than saying but is the Arabic wording coming to the prophet or not no no you're going back maybe 50 or 70 years now to very specific scholars who wrote entire books about this. And so these become kind of new arguments. Of course, you find a lot of the answers in old texts and old narrations and scriptures, but they were never presented in this way. So these are all Al-Kalam al jadid and yeah, I would say anyone who finishes a good course on classic theology definitely encourage them to go do a, a course on Al-Jadid, to be exposed to the arguments of the different schools and, and, and reach a verdict about them because you need it when you enter into theological and philosophical debate about religion. Okay, so the claim of prophethood. So first point is there's a difference between uh, whether the person is claiming to be a prophet or not. If they're not claiming to be a prophet, then the point is moot. we should not be talking about prophetic miracles the second point here is in addition we have to look at the character the history the life of those people so sometimes you will have people who do claim to be performing miracles and who may be doing things that look like they are extraordinary acts but then we have to look at what they're doing. We have to do an analysis of their intentions, of their moral character, of the way they live, to see is this compatible with being a divine prophet sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide humanity or not. And if it's incompatible, and the majority of people would look at this and say, this person would never be worthy, it would never, it's not befitting that this person is a prophet and a representative of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it should stop there. So we can't just look at the act in itself, and we cannot just look at the claim in itself. We have to also look at the person, and that's why we started the lesson with one of the ways to establish is to look at their life and their moral character. Where do they fall? Are they someone who everybody would look at and they say they're a righteous, upright human being, they live by proper principles and values, or do they live for worldly gain and do they live for personal gain and so on and so forth. So here, of course, we can spend a lot of time on this and I don't want to. So, very quickly, I think all of you are aware of the stories related, let's say, to Musaylam al-Kaddab, and there are others. This was a man who was alive at the time of the Holy Prophet, who also tried to establish his prophethood at the same time. And there are a lot of documented, you go back to the history the story of the Holy Prophet, his life, and you'll see many, many stories that are documented about what he would do. But if you take his story very quickly, uh, at some point, there are people who came to him, some of his followers, and they told him, you need to be doing the same miracles as Muhammad is doing. Otherwise, people are not, and we were not. We will not believe in you. We can't keep following you when he is performing these miracles. So they told him, so what has he performed? And they told him, well, he just went to a place, and the people of that place, their fruits were, uh, all, all the plants were dying or dead. It was becoming a desert, and their well had almost no water left in it. And so he prayed for them and he asked for a little bit of water from the well and they say he put some of his saliva in it and put it back in the well and it was overflowing with water and the place became entirely filled with fruits. So they told that to Masaylam and he's like, I will do the same thing. So Masaylamah prayed, he he did whatever he does, his ritual. For those people, he told them, I promise you that your land will become fruitful and your well will fill. And they say he walked over to the well and there was a little bit of water left that village and he spat in it and the remaining water in there completely dried up and whatever they had left in fruits and plants completely died so I'm not going to go into the detailed analysis of this story but based on what we said don't forget it's supposed to be overpowering if there's a purpose behind this is that it's supposed to establish the prophetic the validity of the prophetic claim I'm a prophet okay so here the reason is so why when we look at all of this what's going on So here there are two. In addition to the scenario we presented, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supporting a prophet with their claim, which is the entire purpose. What do we have? Two other possible scenarios. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supports with a miracle someone who's not a prophet. That's one possibility. And the other possibility is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not support someone who's really a prophet. Okay, so these are the three possibilities. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supports someone claiming to be a prophet And they really are a prophet That's what we're discussing And we're saying this is the case But what would happen if we fall under one of the two other scenarios So someone who is not a prophet Example, case in point, Musaylam al-Kaddaam And there's hundreds if not thousands of these in history Someone who is not a prophet Who claims to be a prophet from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala What would happen if Allah supported them with miracles? It would misguide the people so this is the one thing that kind of, your reason is going to stop at, right? So you've used your reason, all of your rational arguments, and now you are gone to the supernatural. So you have to rely on this miraculous aspect to say this is the final proof that this person is actually sent from Allah So if this person who is not sent is actually supported from Allah with this, and they are claiming to be a prophet, and it would not be clear to the majority of people that they are or not Prophet based on what they do, then this would divide, defy the purpose. That's why we say that would not work. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not allow it to happen. That's one, one scenario. And the other scenario is if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not support someone who is a prophet who needs the miracle to establish his prophethood, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not support them again, it would defy the purpose. goes against divine wisdom, which is the first lesson in this series. Why do we need prophethood? If this does not happen, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not support them with a miracle, when the miracle is needed, then it defies the purpose of the divine intervention to establish guidance for humanity. Okay? Yeah, here very quickly we can mention. So imagine a scenario. Just allegory, an analogy. So let's say you have someone who comes to a town and he tells them, I've been sent by a certain king, by the king of the land. He sent me with a very specific mission. And this mission is to do this, this, and that. And he's asking them things that would normally not be asked of them. So they have to go out of their way. So they're going to tell him, well, what's the proof that you were actually sent from that king? What's the Something has to be Supporting your claim that you're actually sent from him before we let's say give you this money or do whatever you're asking us to do So he could say he has to say something that is Very convincing to them. So if he told them tomorrow the king is actually coming to this town So when he's going to come by I'm going to greet him in this very specific way That will tell you that only someone like me and someone like him would know And we would greet each other in this manner to show you that I am truly his representative So the people will wait and if that happens, they will say, okay, yes, the probability just became overwhelmingly clear that this is actually a person sent by this king. And if it does not take place, then we will have a problem. How come the king did not greet him in this way and it may completely invalidate his entire claim? This is one way to understand the miracle. It has to be something that is being provided by someone making a claim, I'm sent by someone, I have been given something to show you that this is my supporting evidence that I'm sent from them. This is something that only I can carry, no one else can carry this, and it needs to be convincing to the majority of people. So this example is mentioned in Mizan, to Sayyid Ba'i, since you mentioned him. He talks about this when he talks about the nature of miracles, for instance. How, what's their nature and what's their purpose and how are they supposed to work? So if you understand that, then you understand what would this king allow this person to have and not to have. And what situation would he create? Would the king ever create a situation where that person is completely no longer seen as representing him in the, to the people? Would they allow that? They shouldn't, unless they want to get rid of them. Right? So would, something similar could be said about prophethood. Of course, it's a simplified example, but that's the purpose. Quickly, a few additional remarks. First of all, the fourth ingredient, so we just gave three ingredients. We said if they're together then we have a proper miracle in the sense of establishing prophethood. Extraordinary events, acts, actions being performed by people who claim to be prophets with the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Here the, challenging, the challenge function is, would be the fourth ingredient. The fourth ingredient is that no, not only is something performed that defies or breaks away with the natural order of things, but there's also a challenge with it i dare you to try to do something like it mm-hmm. okay so this is in classic theological works this is a fourth condition increasingly our scholars are no longer mentioning it they say with the three that we mentioned that's sufficient you don't need to explicitly state and there has to have there ha- it has to carry a challenge role it doesn't need to the challenge role is implied in there if you understand the three conditions you know that there's an open challenge you know to try to defy it if you can try to beat that if you can okay so that's one a couple of notes on spirituality the first one is and I mentioned it very quickly but unfortunately we do find some of this in our communities and in our societies especially as followers of Ahlul Bayt which I think we should be setting the example leading by example we're supposed to be rational we're supposed to be strategic thinkers we're supposed to be following the imams and the way they thought and they taught us how to think. So for someone, let's say, to very quickly let go of things that are very well established and known, valid in religion, because let's say someone saw a dream, or someone believes in some sort of superstition, or, 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 is not really acceptable. And we unfortunately find a lot of that. So I mentioned that as a very quick point, especially as it relates to the claim of miracles. So and so can do this and that, so-and-so can break the natural order of things with, with something, and this is how we have had entire groups of people who suddenly say, you know, the Mandy has appeared and we're all followers because he can do something. It's not as easy as that. Don't just jump after on a, any bandwagon because you know it looks like someone may be doing something that may look like it's extraordinary, okay? We have criteria that are very well established. <coughs> we have scholars and we have our reason beyond all of that to to use so that's one the second thing is the purpose behind Islamic spiritual development I think there's always this insistence if someone is not a believer in God or someone is a believer in God but just not a Muslim or 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 and they can do things that seem to be defying the natural order of things then how come how come, as a good Muslim, I'm not able to have any telepathic powers, and yet this person looks like they have some telepathic powers? Or they can eat fire, or sleep on nails, or walk on water, or, 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 okay? There's all sorts of examples. And the main point, and this requires a, a good discussion, but very simply, very short, the point of our religion, especially from the spiritual dimension, the point is to Develop your soul so that you get closer to Allah through purity The point is not to Build these capacities faculties abilities this has no merit in our religion Mm -hmm. that someone walks on water does not have merit on its own So maybe there is a way that you work on certain aspects of your being as a human being and you can walk on water You can control certain cause and effect you can manipulate the natural order of things does not necessarily mean that suddenly this has any real worth. Yeah, you worked. it's like you worked out a muscle and you've become very strong at it, and you can use it in a certain way. But that does not make you better or worse. And in fact, our scholars usually try to avoid this. And this opens a, an entirely completely different discussion. The, and it's not in theology, this would be more in akhlaq and spirituality and ethics, that are these things desirable or not? So everything comes down to the intention behind them. In itself, the act means nothing. You don't follow someone because they seem to have more of a, you know, miraculous ability. No. Our imams, let's say, or the holy prophet or the Quran, they've given us the criteria for the moral spirituality of someone. They say the modesty of the person is worth a lot. So that becomes a lot more important than can someone perform something. This is what we're looking for. We've been given those criteria. The rest becomes a little more, you know, great. It's not black and white. The black and white we've been given. There's no specific purpose in trying to develop this spiritual capacity if all it means is I can do something that looks like it's extraordinary. And we have to add to that. So what's the intention? Why did you learn that in the first place? What are you trying to accomplish with it? This is where our scholars try to steer away from that. If you've been given that by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a favor, you're probably going to try to hide that because you don't want that to become a a stumbling block in your spiritual path and not do the opposite and try to use it. You'll be very careful in the way you use that. Right? So this is what we feel and we find in the works of of, uh, ethics and, and morality about this. A last point here is Everything that has to do with the miracles that we discussed until now, has to do at a high level with the claim of prophethood. It has nothing to do with specific teachings being brought forward by the prophet. So no one should go back to a prophet and say, I expect, let's say, a miracle because you just told me I have to pay zakat or perform hajj or pray salat al-subah and, you know, two rakat. These are specific teachings once i've accepted the prophethood let's say the prophecy of a prophet or the prophethood of a prophet at that level the whole point of accepting it is that the rest of the teachings are going to be accepted as devotional proofs in other words to put it very bluntly you basically follow follow them blindly once you've Establish that this person is actually sent as a prophet from Allah SWT to teach you Then the rest is its submission to that and it's following that you don't expect or you don't need Specific proofs for each one of the teachings or this teaching versus that teaching. Okay, and Yeah at the end this is very quickly I thought you know one narration from all Sadiq alayhi salam, I thought that to me Summarizes this entire lesson that we just had, Imam Ali as-Salami says, "La yu'atiha." Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Al-mu'jizat." La yu'atiha. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is a. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gives the miracles to. I believe it's not written properly here. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has a sign or a proof or evidence that He will only give to His prophets and His messengers and those who were presented. In order to establish the truthfulness of those who are truthful and the falsehood or the lie of those who are lying okay so if you understand that then you understand the entire lesson mm-hmm. okay so the entire lesson becomes an explanation of this one hadith from um, Sadikh, um we could very quickly go into the four objections and finish them and finish the okay, lesson here we're already at 55 minutes. Or 55, we can no. stop here. Yeah, because it's better to take our time sure. in next time, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so just, no, so we, we still have, have six minutes for
1: questions. <coughs> so, we start the priority for the sisters if they have any questions.
0: Uh, any questions? No, nothing?
1: Okay, the priority to everyone, and then at the end, same. <laughs> yeah, we go. No. Both okay, i <laughs> Okay, all
2: of this. One of the things that uh, our imagination that uh, America is not known and not available. But there are certain things that are a a long time ago, prophet, like for example, navigation on Islam, the water, and uh, there certain things. or uh, when you put it the earth, tie or put it to one place, one another place, these things can be practiced by certain people today. right. So when the prophet did it at that time, was it considered a miracle, because at that time nobody was able to replicate those but today we can't replicate these things so whatever the prophet did our prophet and imam or any of, of these guys did at that time a thousand years from now they did it and it replicated but it still continued at that time and at that era and whatnot
0: just to be clear so you're saying they're replicated by an imam or replicated by not just normal people. normal people okay so here So the question is, and this was supposed to be the objections, it's not the first or second objection, it's there. If a prophet is doing something that looks like someone else can do later, what do we do with that? And maybe it's because we are lacking knowledge. So when the miracle was performed, I believe it's the first objection, when the miracle is performed, the people of that time did not understand the causality and how to get it done, but maybe today or later, you know, you give enough time to humanity and they will, you know, explore and investigate and try to reach the truth and then that they will also discover the way to do that. So, a couple of things, but very quickly. The first is that if we look at the definition we gave of miracles and we go back to what we consider to be the miracles of those prophets, no, we do not believe that anyone could
2: replicate what they did. I think that's why. Yes. Yeah. So here's where I
0: want to add the nuance. So you're saying we look at something. You can't just look at the end. Let's say someone you say someone was flying a thousand years ago and that was miraculous. Oh, and today someone is flying, therefore it's no longer a miracle because we replicated it. You're only looking at the end. No, no. We have to look at everything. What was miraculous? If they just started flying. And that was the miracle, which I'm not saying it is, okay? That would not be a miracle. But let's say someone could fly today. You can't tell me, and they used a tool to fly when that person did it. They didn't get in a plane and flew. They didn't use any tool. Or You have to do it in the same way they did it. You have to stand at the water and use a normal, typical cane and, and hit it, and then the, the water breaks into mountains, as Musa, a.m. did. That's how you replicate it. You don't put a bomb in there and split it in two and then use tools to. That's different. So, Isa when we say, let's say he used medicine. And this is why I'm saying we have to be very careful. The Quran does not talk about Isa walking on water. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I go back to the miracles performed, he says for instance, there were people who had diseases and he healed them. Or, uh, and there are diseases that are not healed in that way. Okay, if you you have someone who is entirely blind, born blind, and Isa alayhi salam, just performs a little prayer and they are no longer blind, or someone who is you know, medically, scientifically dead, and he raises them back from the dead, I don't think he was using any cardiographs or using, using any, reprogram. you he have to replicate reprogram. it in the same conditions. So can someone say today, a thousand or two thousand years later, that they can replicate the miracle in the same
2: conditions? So it's not only that error. That's what I'm
0: saying. So you cannot say that it's overpowering, but only overpowering in that era So now then is it random? So this opens the discussion to how are these miracles chosen and we have narrations from our Imams that say these were based on the requirements and the expertise of that time So who is who was most influential who had the power who would be most convincing? Who do you really have to convince in that world? to spread your message the most. So in the time of the Faraon of Musa, it was magic. So if you get the magicians to agree that this is a divine miracle, that's it. The whole edifice crumbles. So the miracle is directly aimed at them. So it comes out in this manner. Whereas in the time of Isa, in our (coughs) narrations, our imams tell us, medicine was considered to be extremely advanced. And people were doing things that maybe today we would consider miraculous. So that's why when he does his miracle, it's the experts, that's why we go back to the idea of the experts of the field say, no, no, this is way beyond, it's of different nature. This is beyond our means in this field. There's nothing within our capacity to do this, to replicate this, now or in the future. So now we have to actually sit back and look at every miracle on its own and one, establish that it it was a miracle
2: and two is it replicable or not okay so no. that's that yes uh, I'm, I'm yes yes what's the follow-up um, question so what do you say outside of lots of I don't know if you said this but I'm, I'm assuming it's outside uh, lots of nature but it's in reality is within the lots of nature but because the nature is actually goes down to the very uh, electron molecule so we really need not outside of laws of nature, and just because it looks like it is, we say outside of laws of nature. So this one I'm not going to answer. We're okay. going to leave it to the next Objective. week, which is the objection,
0: which is the I'm objection. I'm, objection. I'm just saying. Anything. No, no, but the next lesson is objections and answers, and objection one is okay. what you're saying. Okay. So basically, okay. are we breaking away with the okay. laws okay. of okay. causality okay. and nature or okay. not? Okay. Sure. Yeah,
1: it's a good question. Absolutely. Yeah. <coughs> I, I think you answered about this in line with that last hadith So something like Contemporary, like Chris Angel You know he has those shows and does his magic tricks Maybe some are illusions, maybe some are real Or yogis So people can, you uh, know what they're saying Because here it's saying Allah wouldn't give these people the ability to do these miracles
2: mm-hmm.
1: Unless they were prophets or, or saints mm-hmm. But then you have people who are just outside of, uh, let's say, righteousness or goodness, who commit m- miracles or magic. Mm-hmm.
0: So how do, we, how do we reconcile that? So that's why I said it could be extraordinary. This is extraordinary things. Have they claimed to be prophets? No, they don't claim to be prophets. So that's why we said the claim to prophethood is important. If the person says, I can do this, but I'm not sent by God already. Okay, that's Indeed. one two we said it cannot be something that you can teach maybe if i go spend a year with chris angel he's going to teach me all those tricks and i can do you're saying what they do is
1: not it's not not repeatedly it's not like miracle according to how we're defining a miracle you can never
0: go to the holy prophet or musa or isa to teach you how to raise the dead right okay he would not be able to teach you and you would not teach teach
1: you his discipline to enable you to have last week, say that's one last week say you said how are um, the Masumen they're sinless and also they don't make mistakes. So I thought to myself, okay, how about from the Prophet or even the Imams with certain appointees they put in government posts, they later recanted on those positions Say, okay, this person wasn't good. Or for example, certain prophets taking on certain wives mm-hmm. From Nabil, Nabi know our Prophet. Certain prophets thinking on companions, like Nabi Musa, mean, uh, he had amongst his companions people that were, prophet, like, were you know, exactly like some of the work, yeah. The prophet who had companions, yeah. But even so, how, were these considered mistakes? Because were they not that are they considered mistakes? So, same so, thing with appointment, like government posts. Let's say the other ones <laughs> for a test. So it wasn't because this position you want to take on this friend or this companion to let's say teach us how to deal with a person but like they're appointing a certain government official who ends up being corrupt So let's go a step
0: higher no. So let's say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who allows Iblis to teach the angels for 4,000 or 6,000 mm-hmm. years if not more mm-hmm. Was that a mistake? Or no. we look at the history of humanity and you know depending on whatever interpretation you have you have a group of people, the people of Nuh alayhi salam, Allah wa ta'ala creates them, gives them all the means, and at the end they're not guided, so he wipes them out. Mm-hmm. Was that a mistake? So today, a lot of people view the Bible and the history of the Bible in that way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made mistakes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so every time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is correcting that mistake by coming back <laughs> and putting light out on it, and you know, at the end he has to send his son, or whatever, you know... Uh, narrative you want to follow that's one interpretation and the other one is no it's not making you are using the natural means and every time you come back and intervene in it it doesn't mean that you're making a mistake it doesn't mean that you didn't know what was gonna happen there are natural means in place I create a government Imam Ali, let's say for instance Imam Ali, he came to power the conditions that he was in meant that he's not gonna Basically wipe out the entire government in place and put an entirely new one There's just not enough competence in all of the people to do that and the government would crumble. So what does he do? It's a balancing act. Mm. He has to choose in the best possible way Mm. This person okay He's the least evil that will also allow the majority of people to still live in what looks like a stable life So let's keep him in place until he does something that completely exposes him to the people which Mm. happened with a number of them. And then in that case, that's it, he needs to be removed. But then no one can come back and say, you removed so-and-so without reason, right? This is a balancing act. Whereas others, he put them, there should be good, they are righteous good people, but they may not have all the political competence. But how do you do that? How do you acquire the loyalty of this tribe without putting this person from this tribe in your government, right? It's all of that. That at the end, you cannot say they're just going to follow their, let's say, divine knowledge and use their infallibility in this way. So I wouldn't, one way, maybe, but that's a cheap and mistaken way of doing it, is to say these were mistakes. Mm-hmm. And if they were, then they're in the same sense, in the same way, one could say these were mistakes by God. that Someone could say, Ta'ala made a mistake in the history of humanity by creating these people at that time where... You know, he saw, after he created them, he saw, oh, man, these people are really bad. They need to be wiped out and replaced by another people. It's not a mistake. Mm-hmm. It's, you're, you're looking at it from one angle. You need to look at it from another, and you'll see, no, there's no mistake here. It's okay. a normal order of things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala follows or the Imams follow. And uh, anyone who has the, let's say, rational knowledge and arguments and way of thinking would say, this is a right way of doing things. But... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes things work in a certain way. Your job is to do based on your free will. It doesn't mean you control other circumstances or the end result. Right? Ah, sense. Right? Yeah. Would it almost be like, I mean, just, are you fashioned? No, a, We just have a have One on minute
1: say yeah. um, okay. Okay. this is a follow-on to the sense question then. Would it be fair to say that for
0: instance, um, you know, people committing mistakes and then Allah's Azab descending upon them? With the element of free will, at that point, and obviously since God is not making a mistake in creating
1: them in the first place, it's almost like the people bring the end result upon themselves,
0: so that's the consequence of their action. Mm-hmm. And the same would be said even with the oppressive rulers, right? It's like they've been created for the people to see. So. 100% yes, but his argument it's good, it's absolutely right. Uh, but his argument, it has to be said in a way so that it's also applicable to, let's say, the manner in which the Holy Prophet or the Imams mm. ruled, for instance. So from the outside, it may look like they made a mistake. Mm. And today, we do have that. Even within our school of thought, there are people who say, you know, Imam Hussain committed strategic mistakes or military mistakes, or Imam Ali should have done this instead of that. Okay, so here we have to go back and say, <coughs> well, is that really the case? Or maybe you're looking at it from a very myopic uh, limited perspective, if you looked at the whole thing, you would agree that well, this was the right thing to do. You're you're missing a point here, you're missing an angle, or you're missing a detail that was very important in the context or whatever.
1: You know, say on this second, like, on the supernatural, like Shias, we always want to witness miracle, or like mysticism and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, another day, I was thinking, I was just thinking myself, oh, let's say the moon, one of his greatest miracles is how he split the moon, but honestly, to me, a greater miracle than this is his ability for 63 years whenever a guest would come to his house to never recline his back. This, this is a miracle of a much higher degree than someone spitting the moon yeah, at becomes, one instance.
0: And this is kind of, where, yes. and So we
1: focus on the moon and on yeah. the water and whatnot. Rather, if we really focus on the manners of the Prophet and the detail to which he practiced his life, mm-hmm. it's... It's not any miracle yes. of, the, of a supernatural yeah. nature.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful.
1: Thank you so much, Sayyid. Uh,